Well, for those of you that were uh, not with us last week, we began our study um, in our Old Testament book that we're going to be walking through. And we, we opened up with a few, uh, the first eight verses as we began our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, how many of you um, are familiar with Ecclesiastes to a decent degree? Okay, good. Okay. Um, I, I enjoy Ecclesiastes again. As I mentioned last week, I enjoy it a lot because it goes through a lot of human emotion mixed with human thought with a man like Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, wrestling with understanding even what it is around him. This, this man with all of this wisdom still going back and forth. And as we see towards the end here of chapter 1, verse 14 down, which we'll get to next week, uh, he's vexed by different things. You know, often I think in my life, man, if I just had a little bit more wisdom, if only I understood a few more things, if only I had this thing that I don't have, right? Because it's always, we always want something that we don't have. What we have is never often enough. But maybe if I just had a little bit more wisdom, I would understand all the secrets of the world. And yet here we find Solomon with all of the earthly things that a person could have ever longed for between the wealth and the fame and the status and everything at his disposal, as he even mentions, that he was king over Israel in Jerusalem in verse 12. He had it all, but yet he gets to where we were last week. And I want to do a bit of review because it sets the scene for the entire book as a whole. And we see what he writes here in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where he says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, here we have what is known as literary pessimism, and he's going to address this idea. Um, if we were to survey the room right now, I'd be curious to see the breakdown. We won't do this because the person next to you might judge you for it. But if we were to go around and say, are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? I would be fascinated at the results in this room. Uh, there are some of us that display more optimism than maybe we truly do hold to. And conversely, there's some of us, um, largely myself, I'll put myself here, that display more pessimism than I actually hold. Um, in my house, largely, as you can tell by my dry, um, non-funny humor, I suppose. Okay, Jamie, you know, we were going to talk. Just the two of us, now you're done. Now you're done. <laughs> Uh, but largely, the jokes always centered around pessimism, about how there, there isn't going to be any hope, that this idea of vanity of vanities, that all is meaningless or it's all futile, was largely kind of what our jokes centered around, whether it was um, about uh, politics, whether it was about getting anywhere on time, whether it was grades and academics. It was just meaningless to even work at it because it's just not going to happen. Uh, I remember always coming home, and my dad still bothers, still bugs me about this and gets mad and says he hopes my children do the same. But I would come home every day, and he stopped asking this question. A um, little bit of background. First seven years of school for me, outstanding student. All A's, it would have bothered me to get something less than 100. It, it would, would have grieved me. Somewhere in the seventh grade year, I just kind of gave up. And I know exactly what happened. I got a C for the very first time on an assignment in seventh grade. It was a physical science something or other. And it was a, we had to draw, 
It was something with drawing like the human body and doing all these different things. Well, I was very self-conscious about my artistic abilities. I was very troubled about the idea of having to do this. So what I did was I had somebody else do it for me. Okay. Yes, that for everyone that doesn't know is called cheating. Do not do that. How I still got a C on something that I didn't even do is still beyond me and might be an indictment of the school that I went to. Um, but I sit back and I remember getting that C, realizing this, and giving, being given the opportunity to do the assignment myself for a better grade. Well, that was a moment of being self-conscious about drawing, or you just take the C and you move on. I took the C, but I never really moved on from it. That kind of set me back a bit. And I see this as a pivotal moment because after that point, and um, obviously Brittany and her mom, have experienced this, both with me in high school, I would come home, my parents would always ask, you know, do you have a test tomorrow or do you have any homework? And my response, what do you guys think it was? It was three words every single time. What do you think it was? I don't know. Yes, absolutely. I've never had an answer to my parents throughout all of high school other than I don't know. My kids do this to me all the time, and it drives me insane. Because I tell them, that's not an answer. And then I do the cool parent thing where you say, do you think I was able to tell my parents I don't know all the time? Do you think that was an acceptable answer? They actually think that that wasn't okay. So no one make them wise to the act. But, but I think about all of these things and constantly with the answer of I don't know when in fact I actually did know I had homework. I just didn't want to be held accountable to doing these things. Any hope for me to come home and be diligent in my studies at that point in my life was futile. It was meaningless. And here we see Solomon with a very pessimistic statement of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's saying if this is all that there is, he's keeping it from a perspective, as we're going to see, which is under the sun, which is earthly. If this is all that there is in life, then everything is meaningless. Now, again, this is not a person who had very, very little. He had all that the world has to offer. And he sat back and he looked at it all and said, this is all meaningless. It does not satisfy. Verse 3, he continues, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Here, um, we look back a bit in mythology, and there's a familiar figure to maybe some of you, although based on the number of people that enjoyed history in the Sunday school, I'm going to guess not many. Um, I love history, and if you don't, something is wrong. It's wonderful. Some of you are giving me stink eyes, and I don't like it. But there was a, a figure in mythology named Sisyphus, and he was this mythological figure who was cursed with a task, a task that some of us feel like each day we actually are living out in a much more metaphoric sense. His task was to push this very large boulder up a very steep incline and push it all the way up to the top. That sounds miserable, doesn't it? It sounds absolutely awful. Um, and seeing as we just did, we hiked uh, Storm King, and you guys obviously were there too, uh, we understand how difficult it would be to push a large boulder up a rocky mountain or hill. It would be incredibly difficult. But this was his task, and he was cursed with this task for all of eternity, to push this all the way up the hill. 
Well, he would push it, and the stories go that he would get it all the way up to the top, and just before it would actually get to the peak, to a landing, the gods or um, the, the different um, fates and all of this, they would cause him to slip and to fall, and the boulder would go tumbling right back down the mountain, down the hill, and he would have to do what? Start all over again, pushing that thing up the mountain. Cursed with this fate in mythology for all of eternity. Imagine that being your fate where if today you were told you're going to push this boulder up a mountain for all of eternity, but you, you can be done once you get it there, but every single time being impeded along the way. And that is the circle of your life. But yeah, this is often how many of us approach our work, isn't it? This is the way Solomon is kind of addressing here in verse 3. What profit is it? You do all of this work just to come right back the very next day. And as he walks through verses 4 uh, through 7 and through 8, everything is just a cycle. It's repetitive. It's monotonous. Everything day in, day out is the exact same. Remember last week I jokingly said our idea of, of, a, of difference in our day, of variety, is just traveling a different way to work. And I made fun of my father as I do every chance that I get. We're like basically best friends. If you understand our relationship, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, but he ate the same thing for breakfast every day to this day since I was born. Every single day, toast with peanut butter and honey. And when asked, why don't you want to try something different? He says, I like this. That, that's just the way that he views the world is just simplicity and monotony is thrilling to him. Uh, he wants to work at a toothpaste factory, twisting on the caps for the toothpaste. This is so often what people t tend to gravitate to because maybe some of you have lived in your life and you've had so much responsibility, so much change, so much is in flux. You say, I just want to twist on the cap at the toothpaste factory just for a little while. I just want to know that I don't have to think. I don't have to work. I just have to turn this little, little lid. But here he goes through now in verses 4 through 6, and these different examples of creation which show the repetitive nature of life. The first one uh, there in verse 5, he goes through, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastes to its place where it arose. The sun comes up every morning and it goes down every evening. Last Sunday when we saw these verses, the sun came up that morning and it went down that evening. Did the sun come up this morning? Absolutely. Some of you aren't sure. It did. Spoiler, sun came up and is going to go down tonight just the same. Same with the wind. The wind blows and it returns. Uh, the rivers, the water goes and the waters return. Even there you get an indication of water cycle. We see so many things here, but he's outlining everything is repetitive. It's starting to get dull. It's starting to get boring. It's just, it's this idea of the rat race, right? Being on a hamster wheel, we just keep turning over and over and over again. Now, he sits back with all of his wealth, all of his money, all of his power, all of his authority, all of his wisdom, and says, we have all of this, but everything is meaningless. If this is all that there is, it does not satisfy, and all of it is meaningless. And he gives us the understanding of why there in verse 8, as he says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. And last week we, we addressed this issue that 
our eyes grow dull towards things that are meant to be beautiful, magnificent, or spectacular, where we look at them and they seem to have lost their beauty, where we, we know it's a beautiful thing and we look at it now and we go, I've seen that before. Eh, it's not new. Where we now take everything that has to be, it has to be new for it to be something that is exciting. And we liken this to a spouse to where we've been married 30, 40, 50 years, whatever the case is, and we look at our spouse now and it's as if our spouse is just, it's commonplace. You've been there for so long. It's as if it isn't significant, as if your spouse no longer has the beauty and the magnificence that they once held because it's grown dull in our eyes. Or the ear not satisfied with hearing where we hear about some miraculous, seemingly miraculous events around the world. We hear these incredible things and we go, eh, that's happened before. We hear of um, a revival or we hear of, of groups of people in other nations or we hear about young people and older people coming to believe in Christ and we say, wow, that's cool. And then we just continue our conversation about the last sports game as if something incredible did not take place. And, and as I go through this, just as Solomon is doing, including himself, I absolutely include myself in this, where we can hear something fantastic, beautiful, marvelous, and just say, okay. Where you hear of a, a death, burial, resurrection of the Son of God, and we go, yeah, no, I understand that. Let's get to something else that's more interesting. How quickly uh, things become commonplace, and we can even have contempt for these things. But Solomon walks through all of this and says they're meaningless because they do not satisfy. How many of us would say, I would just be satisfied if I had uh, this much more money? Or if I lived in that house, I would be satisfied with myself. Or if I had whatever the list may be, then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be satisfied. But until then, I'm restless. I'm anxious. I'm uneasy. Solomon had more than any of us will ever have, and I feel confident in saying that's a guarantee. All of it at the end, he says, it's meaningless. It does not satisfy. That catches us up to where we're going to be here, verses 9 through 11. He writes, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you for this time. We ask that as we look here at your word, as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes, as we continue to enter into what it is that you are revealing through your word this morning, I pray that we would keep our focus on you, that we would read this in light of Scripture as a whole, that we would interact with what is being brought forth, that we would thoughtfully consider within ourselves our own hearts and our own understanding of these things. Something that often plagues us as in our fallen humanity is this, this temporary loss of focus upon you. But God, I pray that you would um, allow our gaze to be upon you and you alone here this morning. It's in Jesus' name.
Amen. For some of you, there was at the end there of verse 9, a very familiar phrasing of there is nothing new under the sun. As part of a younger generation currently and with all the different technological advances and so much uh, changing so rapidly, um, you know, there's always this draw, and I think historically there has been, um, outside of the Hebrew culture, there's this draw that newer equals better, right? Because it's a newer thing, then it has to be better. Um, I greatly struggle with this at times, and if you notice, many of the notes that I take, whether it was for school or otherwise, was largely due to pen and paper. I'm a pen and paper guy. I want to feel things. I don't like to do all of it on the computer. Um, my pen and paper has never stopped working when I'm trying to write something. Or you could just get a new pen. How many of you have ever had computer issues in your life? Everybody that's ever used a computer, right? Every single time. Um, so I greatly like, I feel this confidence and kind of this nice relationship with my yellow legal pad and a pen. We're very close. We hang out quite often. And it's something that newer always comes across as being better. Your microwave may not always work. It's probably good to know alternate ways to heat something and to cook things. Uh, this is what I found out. Uh, Brittany and I, when we were, I was going to say when we were married, but earlier in our marriage, um, one of the houses that we were renting, didn't have, we didn't have a microwave. And we just had, was it a toaster oven? Yeah, just had a toaster oven. Well, I'm sitting here going, how do I reheat my coffee? What do I do? I don't know. I could put it on the wood stove. That's about it. It was a shocking moment in my life. of I've never lived without a microwave. I've never lived without a computer. I've never lived without having a TV in the home. That's just the way that I was raised. That's the generation that I'm in. This is what I'm used to. But people survived before all of these new things, right? Some of you survived before the invention of all of these different things and perhaps prefer going back to much of this old way. But here in verse 9, Solomon enters in, keeping this understanding, saying that the things that have been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. Here he goes through and says, is anything actually new? There is nothing new under the sun. Someone comes along, has this new idea, this new uh, philosophy, this new way of thinking, and in fact, it is not new. This is ancient literature itself saying there is nothing new. This is written prior to the time of Christ, so even if you give it the latest possible date, it's at least over 2,000 years old. No one is going to come along and tell us something that is new and creative and, and clever. It's not going to be the case. This is what uh, the philosophers on Mars Hill were doing in the book of Acts. That They were sitting around discussing what is new so much that they're trying to come up with new gods. We need a new one. We need a new, we need a, a better God for these things. This completely contradicts a Christian understanding of, of what it is to come. Solomon here is not saying continue in these things, persevere, press forward because the best is yet to come. He's saying things were bad in the past. That's how they're going to be in the future. Do you see all the pessimism as he writes throughout all of this? Some of you are probably getting depressed as you read uh, the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. And I can kind of see some of the depression of this guy is depressing. 
But this is what he's wrestling with. And I think if we're all being honest, there's been times that we also enter into this line of thought is, I'm just working and I don't know why I'm working so hard because there is no fruit of it. There's, there seems to be no result. It seems every time I get that boulder all the way up the hill, I'm about to finally get something out of this, and then I slip, and the ball rolls all the way back down the hill. Not just a little bit, right? We're not so fortunate where it just slides a little bit. It craters all the way down to the bottom, and here we go, walking all the way down, pushing it all the way back up yet again. Day after day, we wake up the same time, we go to the same job, we see the same people, we have the same conversations, and we sit back and we can go, you know what? There has to be more than this. Because this doesn't satisfy. It's skeptical. It's, it's pessimistic. It's all the things that we often dislike in the world. I'm actually going to ask an interactive question here, so don't be alarmed. Does anybody know what an, the ancient symbol of skepticism was? This is for 20 gold stars. It's a shape. Name a shape, be wrong, it's okay. Sarah? Hectagon? Hectagon, no, but it, that is a shape and it's close. Huh? A circle, yes. The most fundamental shape that we all know and understand. A circle. Yeah, 20 points to you, sir. Well, the points don't matter, but congratulations. At least Jamie didn't get the points. <laughs> so this is an ancient symbol of skepticism was the circle because, again, it's this continuous loop. History has no definite beginning or end. You just continue and continue, and you go round and round and round and round and round. It's the, this hamster wheel. It's the rat races. Everything is just around and around. Everything is cyclical. If it happened before, it's just going to happen again. So if it's bad, it's going to happen again. If it happened, if something bad happened before, you're going to see it again later. That everything in life is simply a circle. So what we know as the most basic uh, shape, one of the first things that any kid learns to draw, was this ancient symbol for skepticism. That there isn't a meaning. It all just keeps coming back around. There was no actual beginning, and there is no actual end. Because a circle never ends. How many of you are encouraged by that thought? Yeah, it's hopeless, right? It's completely empty. And this is, was popularized in, in the way that we understand things by uh, Frederick Nietzsche a long time back with this, uh, his idea of nihilism, that there isn't really um, any meaning or any purpose in things. Again, nothing new. Solomon espoused this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. says that there wasn't actually a creation. There wasn't actually a beginning. We just kind of happened to be. We're just large germs that grew up. Thoughts are happening, but they don't mean anything. And then nothing actually has value. I'm going to ask this question again, probably a few more times. How many of you are encouraged and excited by that viewpoint? You're just a big germ. You're like a fish that grew legs in a brain. You're just kind of there. See, because in the way that they understood it, when you go back all the way, and again, we talked about in the Sunday School about the importance of history, there were these two competing images that were fighting for the way that man would think, for allegiance and thought. It was Apollo and Dionysus. 
Apollo had this classical beauty. It was about form and order and purpose and all of these things that we recognize largely as far as God being a God of order, God um, creating things with form, God creating with purpose and having this, this understanding. And then the opposing side of Dionysus, which represented chaos, so that you're just supposed to react and just respond to what happens. This would absolutely allow chaos within, uh, within the church, within the home, chaos within government, within every situation, to where if you do anything to me, I can just react. I don't have to think. How far is that going to go? We just emotionally react to everything. Well, if you hit me, then I'm going to hit you, and we also don't want to just match it, right? We always want to one-up something. If you're going to get me back, we say eye for an eye, but usually it means you take one of mine, I'm going to take two of yours. This is the human condition. Let it all hang out. Just respond to whatever happens and let it be chaos. Just react to all of this. And Nietzsche largely said, we need to choose now and we need to choose Dionysus. We need to just indulge our emotions, indulge our feelings, and just let loose and react. This is the, the idea of an uncontrollable child who is just reacting to being told no. And we've seen these tantrums, right? And, and so we don't think I'm picking on children. We've seen this in adults, too. We've seen tantrums. We see people lacking in control. Those of you that enjoy uh, reading might be familiar with Ernest Hemingway's book, the sun also rises. He, he takes this here from Ecclesiastes, and as he goes through, if you're familiar with Hemingway, he is not a person I'm largely endorsing for theological or philosophical thought. Uh, he was absolutely with Nietzsche. He gets to the end of his life, and even in his writings, you see this pessimistic, uh, very depressing viewpoint where he goes through and says, everything is meaningless. That the, he, he writes, how could someone who writes so beautifully and so well and can capture what is created yet have no, see no meaning in all that he is writing about? Who devotes such a great deal of their life to recording things but yet finds no meaning in what it is that they're writing about? He, in, in speaking about, about this understanding, he, he writes that the only way that as man and as humans we have victory and cheating death is by determining the place, the time, and the means of our death. He gets to the very end and he says the only way that we actually have any kind of a meaning, the only way that we can have any control over anything in our life is to determine the time, the place, and the way in which we die. So essentially his conclusion is what? It's suicide. And that's exactly how he died. He, he set up his own hunting rifle after his wife went to bed, gives her a hug and a kiss goodnight, says, I love you, sets it all up, and he ends up shooting himself. A man who has written so many things, who spends so much of your time figuring out or looking into the way the world works, looking at everything and coming to the conclusion, everything is meaningless thinking it's a new idea, just as Nietzsche would have thought, he's having a new idea, the idea where Nietzsche comes out and says, God is dead, as if that was a new, uh, fascinating statement, like it wasn't already consisted thousands of years before. Again, allegiance to the circle, to this idea that everything just revolves around, it just continues. 
day in and day out. It's the exact same thing. You have nothing to look forward to. You're going to end up right back where you started, just like back at the bottom of the hill with this big boulder trying to push it all the way back up the hill again. And in contrast to that, the Hebrew view was greatly distinct, where they viewed time not as a circle in this continuous loop, but very much in a linear fashion. They view time as linear, that it has a beginning, that there actually is a beginning to it, and they represented this by a line, because it starts somewhere. And where do you think they draw this from? Where do you think they draw their idea of time from? Rather than just a circle, why would they say it's a line that continues? In the beginning, God. Have you ever considered how significant those first four words, even just the three, but I like to attach the fourth there, in the beginning, God, is to the way that you view the entire world around you, the way that you understand why you go to work, why it's worth the time and the effort you even put in to have a good relationship with another person, why you care for your family, why you do anything that you do. Have you actually thought about why in the beginning God means that much? Because that simple understanding is such a direct contrast to Nietzsche, to Hemingway, to so many others that say everything is without meaning because their fundamental assumption is we were not created, we just happened. People look for purpose everywhere in their life, don't they? Don't we look for purpose in everything? Man, we are so much better workers when we have a purpose for what we are doing. The, the purpose, this is again going back to, to my freshman year. First semester of college, I had a 1.9 GPA. Feel free to laugh, it's fine, it's whatever. Get it? it didn't stay that way, so judge me now. Be wrong in a minute. No. Uh, it wasn't good. I wasn't really going to classes. I just decided certain days I didn't want to go to work. Um, all these different things, because in my mind, I said, there's no purpose in this. I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't even know why I'm here at school. I don't even want to be at this school. Everything had, there was no purpose to anything that I was doing. Well, then comes semester. Now I'm home for Christmas break. Having to explain to my parents why their supposed intelligent son has a 1.9, can't go to class, and isn't longer uh, able to have that job. Brittany's probably... She remembers this and is shaking her head. Uh, it's all very true, by the way. Then I, I have the, the uh, let's say, the courage or foolishness to say, you know, Mom and Dad, uh, Brittany and I, we've been dating a little bit. We, we had been best friends for quite some time. Um, and I want, this summer, we're, we were talking about getting engaged and wanting to get married. So here's me, 18-year-old Matt, talking to my parents about, hey, can I ask my girlfriend to marry me? Well, I have a 1.9 GPA, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to class. But in contrast, saying also, can I transfer schools at, in the middle, at semester, to go to the school that she is at, which is going to cost my family more money? Can you imagine the, the gall to do this? So they said no. <laughs> okay. Uh, they were fine. See, the thing is, they love Britain. That was never a question. The getting married to Brittany, I think they um, sympathized with her. I think my dad even gave her plenty of ch chances along the way to get out in the way that he put it. Um, but it was a fascinating thing because my dad, I remember him telling me, if you can't prove to us 
that it is uh, significant enough to you where you can't even go to work, you won't even go to class, how much do you actually care? How much? Why should we pay more for you to go to this school, for you to not go to classes there, for you to do all these different things? And then he challenged me with this understanding that if you do better in school and if you actually do well, then we'll reevaluate. Well, now I had a purpose, right? I actually had a reason for something that I was, I was doing, and it was because I actually loved her and wanted to marry her. So that got me going with work. That got me engaged in school in a much larger degree, not perfectly, but in a large degree, because I had a purpose for what it was that I was doing, an absolute purpose that I knew, and it meant everything to me at the time. Everything since that time, and I think she would agree, has completely changed because I had a reason for what I was doing. Here, the Hebrews say, we have a reason for what we are doing because they can trace it all the way back. They open up their scriptures. They see the very first words in Genesis that in the beginning, God. Inherently, there is purpose there because you have been created. You didn't just happen. You didn't just burst on the scene. You weren't just some, some germ or a cell that just happened to grow up searching for a purpose. This is why we're so unfulfilled when we get the job that we wanted, when we, when we have as many kids as we wanted, when we have all of these other things. If God is not present, we will not be satisfied. This is the, the whole of Scripture tells us that you can have all of these things. Solomon had every single thing imaginable, yet counted it as meaningless. Doesn't that sound like Paul? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was this iconic figure, the best that anybody in the time could have hoped to be. And he says, I count it all as what? As dung. It's rubbish. It's worthless. I count it all as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. This whole concept of creation, that we were created and not just made, but very much in the image of God for a specific purpose, completely destroys any concept that life is meaningless. Think of how often we do push that rock all the way up the hill. How many people we know, they're just pushing this thing up the hill and it's never going to get there. Something's always going to get in the way. It's never going to be enough. They're going to fall as they get there and they go right back down and they push it all the way back up again. This is the entire book of Hebrews that says, you've received the gospel, you know what Christ has accomplished, that he has done all that he said he would do, and now you're reverting back to the old, these old burdens of the law, of all of the rituals, of all the sacrifices, when Christ actually was the one perfect sacrifice for all time. Don't go back again into bondage. Don't go back into slavery. This is why it's hard for many who uh, retire to get back into the workforce, right? Because, man, I'm never going to retire. I've publicly said that. I don't think I'm allowed to, which is sad, but we'll move past that. But when you retire, unless you're my grandmother who retired and three months later had a job because she just wanted to, it is very hard to get back into things. We don't go backwards in our lifestyles very well. We don't, we don't get back into work when we understand what it's like to not be working. All of this understanding, and again, Ecclesiastes is going to pick up. There's going to be more to it. It's not going to be 100% pessimism. But I want us to see this in light of where we've been in the book of Philippians as we finish this out. Partnership and joy in the gospel is what we saw all the way through Philippians. 
joy in suffering, knowing that, that God is producing, He is working faith in us to grow us and to persevere and working in this patience. Here, as he mentions all, all things under the sun, there's nothing new. He's meaning from this world only. It's a perspective of purely in this world that if there is more, we can't access it. But what do we know to be true? Do we read these words and say Solomon is absolutely right that there isn't anything? Or do we see that he's wrestling and he's missing something? He is absolutely missing something here. And we're going to continue to flesh these things out. But in closing, I want us to look at three different verses Flip to Philippians chapter 3. Because I don't want to leave us just with this contrast and this uh, more depressing state or understanding where we're just seeing all of it being meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. There is no remembrance of these things. It's important that we keep it properly understood. Because unlike what the thought was at the time for Nietzsche and for Hemingway and for so many in the past, all of creation, much like each of us today, is moving towards an appointed destiny. We are moving towards something. We're not spinning around in this eternal circle where everything is meaningless. Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. See, see it's, not a, it's not a circle where we can't see what it is to come. We're looking forward. We're looking forward to the day where we look upon the very face of Christ. This is an incredible shift who is going to change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Do you look forward to that day? And in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, the beautiful promise of these words, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It will be completed. It will be. It's not a circle where you're going to get back to where you started. It will be completed. And the closing passage, and then we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12 and working down. Contrast uh, all of these words. Contrast this perspective that we've just studied for so many months in Philippians with what Solomon has said of saying, Everything is meaningless. The thing that many of us say, I've felt that at times. I may feel it today. I may have woken up and said, you know what? It's easier to stay in my bed today. I don't need to get up because, hey, tomorrow's going to be the same. So what's the difference? That there isn't a meaning with what it is that we're going to do. That there isn't meaning. All of the gospel is hope. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, going down. It says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Now notice what he's saying. He's saying if Christ was not raised, then everything that we do is in vain. 
There is no hope. Essentially, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then yes, Solomon is correct. Yes, Nietzsche is correct. Yes, Hemingway is correct. Then there isn't a meaning to what it is that we do. But that's not where it ends. And that's why I'm not letting you guys sit there and we're going to leave it there. He's going to continue on. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men most miserable. If Christ did not do this, then there is no resurrection of the dead, which guess what? That means when you die, that is it that everything is over, that there is nothing past this. If Christ himself was not raised from the dead, then everything is absolutely meaningless. And we are most to be pitied. Verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And we talked about looking forward, and notice as he continues, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And I love these words, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he hath saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is a testament to what it is to come, that it is not a circle of creation, death, creation, death, creation, death, birth, and death. It just cycles all over. There is a resurrection of the dead. It was Christ raised from the dead, and because of that, there isn't a, a sense of hopelessness, that those who do believe will be raised on the last day, that there is this expectant return of Christ, that we do look forward to this, and we absolutely pray for that day to come, and we are so looking forward to it, knowing that our purpose right now in this time, everything we do has eternal consequence, that our purpose is to magnify and glorify God, eagerly anticipating his return. So on that day, we will be raised with him and we can praise him for all of eternity, rightly seeing him as he is in all of his beauty and majesty and glory. That's why we live the way that we do. This is why revelation, the word of God, is so important. We receive access to something other than what it is that we see. Because without this, all we are, not only are we lost in our sins, but we are left pushing that boulder all the way up to the top of this mountain, and we don't even know where to start pushing it. We, we're hopeless to push it. We can't be made right with God on our own. We can't without his revealed word, which is why in the Sunday school we're spending so much time talking about why we trust the Bible, because it is what we have to know who God is and to know 
the gospel, the hope, or else we are left with the conclusion, this is meaningless. The sun does come up. The sun does go down. But it's only through the gospel that we offer any hope to a person. It's only through the power of God that any hope was ever extended to any one of us here in this room. Believe upon God. Believe upon the gospel. Know that Christ was absolutely raised from the dead, not just because historically there's accounts, but because Scripture says that he did. And that's our foundation. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you this morning. We praise you for the resurrection of your Son. We praise you that as we read through Ecclesiastes, as we interact with these thoughts that are so prevalent today, that are so active in the minds of many who do not know you, and even at times those who do, our mind tends to drift and we become overtaken often by what it is that surrounds us, that that we can be beaten down by life, that we allow suffering to detach ourselves from a, from a perspective where we're keeping our gaze upon you. But Lord, I pray that as, as we read in your word and through the epistles that we would set our affections on things above, that we would look to Christ, the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith, that our eyes would ever be set upon what Christ has done on the cross, what he accomplished on our behalf. Father, those of us who, who know your word and who, who know you and have the privilege of calling you Father and Lord, we understand that there, that there is an incredible, beautiful meaning to our, our life here on this earth, that we are to show you to the world, that we are to show forth our salvation, to shine as lights, amidst the darkness, that we are to reflect you in all that we do and everything that we do is to bring you glory, honor, and praise. God, we thank you for the hope that you've given us. We know that our sin was great, but your love and your grace and your mercy was far greater. God, we praise you this morning for all that your word reveals to us, the truth of the salvation that you have offered to those who believe. We look forward to the day where we are bowing before the throne, seeing you in all that you are, seeing you just as you are, no longer blinded by by our eyes, blinded by what it is that is around us in the world, and even blinded at times by our own sin. But we see you rightly and justly in all of your majesty and all of your glory, praising you with the saints of old, being able to praise you in the congregation, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we eagerly await that day, knowing that everything we do now has a purpose, and that purpose is to make you known. God, we love you, and we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.